Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Ego Check with the DM. My name is Michael Mallon, and today I am joined by Katrina Ostrander, and she is a self-described 20-something gamer chick, game master, and blogger working in the tabletop games industry for Fantasy Flight Games, which is just down the road from me here in Minnesota. So very excited to talk with her today. Uh, she's been a writer featured on different blogs, including her own blog, Triple Crit, and excited to talk with her about uh, a few topics here today, including anxiety and game mastering and, and her work with Fantasy Flight. So uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And so I wanted to just dive right in and talk about, you know, you're currently, I think you started as a fiction editor for Fantasy Flight Games, is that correct? Uh, actually, fiction editor was the um, second job that I had. Second Originally, job. I was working on the Star Wars role-playing game line, um, beginning with Edge of the Empire as a role-playing game producer. Excellent. So how did that come to pass? How did you get into Fantasy Flight Games to begin with? Yeah, so in college, I discovered tabletop role-playing games, and I quickly dove in headfirst, becoming the president of my local gaming guild. I was initiated into game mastering and kind of learned what that was all about. And more importantly, I tried a whole bunch of games, including um, a game called Warhammer Fantasy 3rd Edition, which it turns out is kind of similar in uh, game mechanics to the Star Wars role-playing game line. So as college came to an end and I was checking different websites and I just looked on the Fantasy Flight Games careers page just on a lark and there was a position, the role-playing game producer, that fit kind of my gaming interests. I had experience with the particular systems they were kind of recruiting for, but also I had been sort of in the editing, writing side of things in my college, um, working for the literature review for um, my school and also working in the writing center. So I had experience working with authors and trying to better their writing. And so it was kind of this combination of editorial and gaming that, that got me into the position. Excellent. And when we were um, chatting before, which um, is a recording that's lost to time, (laughs) we uh, first tried to do this a few weeks ago and the internet goblins attacked uh, the recording. Uh, But you were telling me back then that you had started Getting into to games in like fourth and fifth grade is that? Yeah, yeah. So um, back then I was already pretty hardcore into anime and manga and uh, perusing the internet because it was still kind of new back then. um, I discovered fan fiction sites, which I was very interested in almost immediately. And I also discovered play-by-post role-playing that was set in the worlds of my favorite animes, such as Sailor Moon and Magic Knight Ray Earth. And so I started doing play-by-post role-play, and I continued that through middle and high school and even into college before I ever really got into tabletop gaming. And it wasn't actually until um, college that I tried it for the first time had a really bad experience and decided, well, I can do better. And then I decided that I was going to be a game master. And I was really lucky to have a whole bunch of people that were basically willing to mentor me into becoming a a game master in my college gaming group. And that's kind of how that came to pass. Excellent. And you wrote an article recently about the play-by-post experience. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because it differs from tabletop in – two, three major ways, first of which being that it is 
Um, not at a table in front of people. It's asynchronous and you do it on forum software and it's really writing heavy. So it's actually a great way to practice description and dialogue and coming mm -hmm. up with character concepts and also plotting out character arcs with other people. And the beauty of it is it's, it's almost like collaborative um, novel writing, and you get to kind of throw your ideas against the other players who are also there controlling different characters. And it differs in a major way because typically there's no game master, at least not in the free form play-by-post um, role plays that I've frequently participated in. Instead, we just had a admin or plot leaders who kind of figured out, all right, in this zone, these are the major conflicts that are going on and basically coming up with a huge ton of hooks to get your character involved in the, the conflicts that are affecting the other characters who are already playing in those zones. But it was really transformative. And for me, it kind of embodies the fact that I've always been into both writing and gaming. Um, and I encourage anyone who is a, an aspiring writer to, to look into that and Especially because you can find a play-by-post role-play that caters to like any sort of fandom or genre that you're really into. So if you have like a favorite mm, a TV point. show or book, you can kind of get your feet wet and start playing with other people who are also really into that show or into that media. And are there a few central hubs for where these games go on, or do you have to hunt around for them? You do have to hunt around. So... The directory that I go to to find um, high-quality role-playing play-by-post forums is called RPG Directory, and I think if you just Google RPGD, um, you'll find it. But that's got it kind of – it lists it by genre. It lists it by fandom. Um, you can also find just role-playing partners there who are just interested in doing more like one-off or you're interested in just exploring a specific character um, more so. So they have a lot of resources there as well as how to role play well. So there's a bunch of like advice articles on that site as well that you can read more about um, doing the writing aspect of it. And in summary, what are some of the tips for doing the play by post well? Or, <laughs> or what are some of the common pitfalls? I don't know which one's easier to address. <laughs> yeah. So to do it well, I talk about this a little bit in the article. It really helps to have a good group that you kind of mesh with. And so if you can find a group of other players who are on the same wavelength and you're able to brainstorm with them collaboratively and kind of build on each other's ideas, then you're just going to have a ton of fun because everyone's like along for the ride. And you also have to be in the, besides from the plotting and kind of figuring out what's going to go on, when you're actually responding to the threads in character, you really have to give up I don't want to say agency, but you have to give up the notion of winning all the time because if everyone's just going to be winning, these are diceless systems typically. Mm -hmm. um, so if everyone's winning all the time, then it's not going to be fun. And so you really have to be interested more so in watching your character struggle and evolve and and make those mistakes and, and fall down, which is really interesting. Yeah, I would imagine that well, – I think any gaming group thrives when there's a level of trust, but removing the – face-to-face -face cues and then just having this asynchronous communication and i imagine that you at times dictate what other characters are doing or how they react i just i would imagine that whole process takes a lot of trust with everyone yeah and so definitely communication is key the same as it is in a face-to-face role-playing group and so 
once you realize that, you know, you're here to tell a story, you're not here to win at a game, it becomes a lot easier because assuming that you're in a good group, everyone's going to have this kind of give and take of, you know, oh, my character is going to be kind of ascendant through this plot arc and your character will get to, you know, stab them in the back afterward, that sort of thing. So the communication um, both online and, and off is, is really important to be able to tell those stories together and not have people's feelings hurt or, you know, things going off in a direction that you really didn't want them to go. And what's the process for you been doing the writing, the play by post, and then getting it more into the tabletop gaming? How did that develop over time? Yeah. So I think that it kind of became a matter of availability because in high school, I was in the I was growing up on the East Coast, and for whatever reason, New York is not really a super great hotbed for tabletop gaming. There's like a couple of game stores, but not really a ton, at least in my area. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went to college in uh, Springfield, Ohio, uh, which is in the nice. middle of nowhere, basically, <laughs> compared to the East Coast. But it's, it's right in between Gen Con and Origins. Okay. So as you might imagine, it's like a gaming mecca. Sweet. And so that's just more of something that people did there. So I didn't have to like hunt online to find people that had similar interests as me. It was, Oh wow. There, there are people that exist in my vicinity who I can get together with. And so definitely the social aspect of it was, was a draw. And also just the, at that point, I think I was starting to kind of fade out of the writing too, just because it, I got more of an immediate gratification from, game mastering for a group or for role playing um, there. And I didn't have to wait for other people to respond to me. For example, I could just have like my four hours mm. of my hit, get mm -hmm. my gaming in. So that, that I think was a, a major reason for why I kind of drifted just the one, the availability and then two, like the style of it, my preferences changed over time. Yeah. And that leads into something I certainly want to talk about. You, you wrote an article for the Contessa site um, fairly recently about you know, being a woman in uh, role-playing games in that in that hobby, and how starting off it was with groups predominantly composed of men, and how your views of gaming changed a little bit when you started playing with other women. Yeah, so like most women probably in the um, tabletop gaming hobby, I was really outnumbered. Things started to get better over time, but definitely to begin with, I would be either the only woman in the group or one of, you know, one or two women in the group. And so there was definitely one style of play, and I was kind of lucky that I was with some um, groups that were still interested in story. But then going to conventions and experiencing that whole scene, I kind of realized, oh, wow, this is really male-dominated, and there aren't a ton of ladies here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can tell because the lines of the bathrooms are, look very different. <laughs> I guess that's a perk. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And then I moved to Minnesota, and I had a whole bunch of lady coworkers um, at Fantasy Flight Games. And, of course, they, they work on games. They work with games and around games. And they were very interested in also checking out role-playing games because many of them had tried – role-playing with some of their other male coworkers and felt really judged by the experience. Mm. Um, they had a harder time kind of 
getting the feel for some of the mechanics and they weren't experts right off the bat the same way that like any other person wouldn't be like oh yeah i know exactly how to initiate a grapple in 3.5 you're just not going to know that immediately off the bat and so for them to kind of play catch up was really intimidating and um eventually we realized that we all had a shared love of the sailor moon fandom and so i said well i'll just run a uh a Sailor Moon game for everyone, and we're going to use a like old school Guardians of Order D6 system, nice. and it uh, it was so much fun. We had two guy players, we had seven women, myself. That's a big group, yeah. Yeah, so we did episodic play with people like kind of jumping in and out as an ensemble cast, but I was really struck at how much cooperation and camaraderie kind of were like such a major focus and everyone was really invested in seeing each other's characters shine whereas i've seen it you know in in other groups in my experience in male-dominated groups where it becomes more of a competition and everyone's kind of like out competing to see oh well we can't have two rogues because then they'll be competing for you know what we can do and and this group it was much more well you know it'd be really fun is if we kind of like you know what my character is doing in her real life and and the relationship that that character is forming, not only with the other player characters, but with the NPCs. And I was really struck at how people were just like kind of interested in in characters other than their own. And it wasn't really about like, oh man, I gotta I gotta get this new magic item, I gotta level mm-hmm. up, I gotta increase my stats. It was more like, how can I win the the affection of this character, or how can we like unlock the mystery of what's going on and like. So to me, it was much more my speed, I realized, because I, when I develop role-playing game campaigns, they're m- much more story-focused or character-focused. And so finding these, like, all women or mostly women groups um, really allowed me to thrive in that way. And that's something that I've kind of noticed, too. I had another campaign besides the Sailor Moon one that was, again, mostly female, mm-hmm. and the same pattern repeated itself. So... Of course, this is just my anecdotal evidence, and I would love to see like studies about you know what different game dynamics are like. But uh, I, I found it was very interesting when I put out that article. Some of the men that were commenting said, "Oh man, that's like exactly what I want out of a game, but I've never had that. Mm-hmm. Why are my gamers like so focused on power gaming and you know defeating the monsters and getting the treasure, et cetera, et cetera?" And I said, "Well, you should should play with more women." <laughs> yeah, and. What do you think contributes to that? That difference potentially, I mean, it's, you mentioned that it's anecdotal, and but, you know, in your experience, what do you think contributes to the different ways that men and women approach role-playing games? I think it has a lot to do with socialization, just in terms of, you know, women are not really raised to be as competitive as, as males would be, I would say. Um, the types of media that we consume is different and whether that's a matter of like how we're wired versus just what we're expected to consume, that's really up for debate. But it's if you go and you just talk to the average women geek versus the average male geek, you're going to get very different like media consumption a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So having uh, more of like a, a novels or a book focus um, is going to create a different type of gamer um, or at least like a, a fantasy or a romantic fantasy um, library is going to create a different gamer, it feels like to me, than someone who's raised on like hard sci-fi and um, other kind of action-packed space opera type stories, which are full of technology and, and things like that. So 
I don't know. I like it's very much a nature versus nurture question, and we just don't have any research really into it. But to me, I definitely know like I can run the romance plots when <laughs> when I have women gamers, and they'll they'll eat it up, and they're really interested in it. And it's I'm not saying that all males don't enjoy romance plots. Many of them do, but it's less about that I find with those types of games. It's more about you know making each other's characters look foolish and, and outperforming each other mm-hmm. in the all-male groups. Yeah, and I, I think going back to this idea of trust in a group and just those social norms of you know, role-playing games about combat or leveling up and getting treasure and kind of power gaming, like you mentioned, you know, I imagine that in, in each gaming group, if one or two of the players, and let's say most groups are men, but I think if one, one or two of the men in a group kind of made an effort to do more of storytelling, more collaboration, that other people would probably be into it a bit. Oh, yeah. But everyone kind of assumes, oh, this is what we're supposed to do. So <laughs> so no one pushes it in a different direction until maybe a couple women enter the group. Like, it would be interesting for for DMs and players to, to experiment with that a little bit. And they're, not to play games with other people, but, I mean, just to push some of those norms that happen. In, in gaming groups. Yeah, and, and to me, it, it's almost, it's kind of almost like this whole, like, way of thinking about things, because I know that um, despite my having gotten into tabletop role-playing games much more in college, I did have one brush with it. When I was in sixth grade, that was when I had my first opportunity to try Dungeons & Dragons 3.0, because when my girlfriends brought it over when we were having a sleepover party, and either it was because none of us had had experience with it or just none of us could get into that headspace. But we had a really hard time picking up that rule book and thumbing through and understanding what the the gameplay was supposed to be like. Because mm-hmm. to us, like the idea of going through corridor after corridor and making a game of searching doors and checking for traps and things like that was just not something that we had been trained to think about. And... For us, it was more so like, all right, well, I want to make my character, and my character is going to be themed all around electricity, and what sort of sweet electricity, like, shticks can my character do, and then we're going to fight some bad guys. And that just, that wasn't there in the the D&D book. It was very much like, no, you have to build your character like this. There's certain paradigms and, like, expectations that you're supposed to have, and if you hadn't really had that sort of sword and sorcery upbringing, I found it was much more difficult to get into, especially coming as we did from like a anime and manga perspective. It just really, it didn't work. And I think some of the, and I, you know, I love D and D so, and you know, some of the other games, even the edge of the empire game, which um, fantasy flight puts out the star Wars game. I really enjoy, but some of the kind of players handbooks and the rule books are very dense. It's, <laughs> I, I mean, the edge of the empire intro book is like you could harm somebody with that if you dropped it on their head it's so, like at least 450 pages it's, it's I, thought you, serious. I thought you were going to say 450 pounds which is accurate <laughs> uh it feels like that when i'm trucking it along to conventions oh yeah i, I took it into work once i was like oh I'll, I'll look at this over lunch and then i was like walking in from the parking lot with the backpack on i was like i can't bring this to work it's <laughs> I have a sore shoulder um, yeah, and that's why I feel like the beginner games are actually a good bridge mm, um, okay. in between them because 
that was something that wasn't really present. I know like Dungeons and Dragons has their starter set now for fifth edition. I think that's super great. But the the Star Wars games and Dan Clark is mostly responsible for this really breaks it down like moment by moment into, all right, here's what these dice mean and here's what your characters can do. And here's what happens when your character does those things. So it starts to pull you into this is what a role playing game feels like in a way that, okay, you're just going to go into a dungeon and you're expected to know how dungeons more or less operate. I, I find the the beginner games are a really great step in that direction, I think, of being more um, inclusive to new gamers and, and helping people get interested in the hobby and not be intimidated at first blush by that you know 450-page rule book of, of crunch and heft. Yeah, and I... You know, I think I've made the mistake as a, as a, a GM. My, my wife had joined a game several years ago because she lost a bet. Which, <laughs> it's a long story, but she played, and I I think I spent too much of the of the game session trying to like introduce and teach her rules instead of just having a good story and like an interesting character and things going on. And that's what she gave me feedback afterwards. She's like, "Yeah, I just didn't really I didn't really get it." I didn't really know what I was supposed to do or why I was doing it. And I think that touches on some of the things you've been talking about where maybe focusing more on the characters, a compelling story, and introducing some interesting NPCs and just seeing what happens, which I don't know if that's the norm for a lot of sessions. I think that GM almost has a plan in mind of, okay, here, here's the obstacle, here's the quest, and Maybe this the is, these are the target numbers for the checks that I'm going to make them roll. Right. Um, instead of letting it be more collaborative and open-ended, and it's something that I want to do. I'm, I'm getting ready to start a new campaign with a group, and I, I think I just want to approach it a bit more of a free-form, you know, having a little bit of a plan, but maybe spending more time just on who the players, like who their characters are, how they're interrelating, and you know, what NPCs they show interest in. I think that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. So the, the biggest thing that I try to do when I'm getting someone kind of into role playing games for the first time is I frequently touch base with them and ask them how their character is feeling about something and allow them to kind of narrate um, what's going on through their character's mind and, and maybe why they feel that way. And then also, if they're feeling up to it, describing whether their character is presenting that emotion openly or if they're just kind of like trying to keep it in. But it's it's fun and people are interested in it, even if they can't like act on, oh, my God, my character is super angry and she really wants to hit someone right now, but she's not going to. It's still enjoyable for the rest of the party to kind of like hear that and to get like a glimpse of the character's inner monologue, even if it's, you know, she's keeping her temper on a leash and she isn't. Um, you know, killing anyone at the moment because uh, role-playing games are really murderous. Apparently, I've discovered when trying to when trying to run games for children, it, you really start to notice how much death goes on in role-playing games. Um, the other thing that I do when I'm bringing like kids into games, in particular, because I've I've run games where I'm playing with six to sixteen-year-olds who are really unfamiliar to games is kind of like what you were saying with your wife and the rules intimidation factor. I just 
tell them the situation and then ask them what their characters do mm-hmm. and use that as a teachable moment to introduce rules. But I find that if we if we start with the rules and then like tell them, okay, here are all the rules and then here's how you use those rules, that kind of sets it up for that kind of gamification as opposed to the just the storytelling and and if you need the rules to adjudicate the storytelling then that's when you can introduce the relevant rule yeah i really like that approach of just letting things play out and then if you need to find a rule or some type of thing that applies then by all means you know consult a book or just make something up on the fly but if you and again i learned this a few years ago when i first introduced my wife to playing 4.0 dnd starting with the rules and then trying to grow from that i think limits people because yeah. I think they feel constrained. They they start thinking about, all right, here's what the rules say I can do versus here's what my character does and then find a rule to fit what's going on with your character. And that's, I think, a huge stumbling block that people have with the Powered by the Apocalypse games, um, trying to wrap their heads around moves because moves, which are the way that your characters act in the game, feel really prescriptive when really they're just there to be like, once you hit a moment in the narrative, then you can you know, fall back on, on the mechanics to see how well you do something or what side effects there are. Um, but to begin with, to, to feel like, oh, I can only de- do these like four to eight moves. That's like not a fun role playing game because you feel like super constrained, like almost like you're in a straight jacket or something. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you mentioned, I think a few moments ago was talking about increasing the, engaging the emotion of the players and their characters more often. And, I can't remember if you just said it or if it wasn't from our first conversation a few weeks ago when you talked about introducing choices that matter and and these moral quandaries. And I wonder if you could talk, talk a bit about that and how you use that at the table. Yeah. So I was really inspired by games like the Witcher three, um, dragon age and kind of other computer games that I had been playing. And I realized what, what made them so awesome was the ability to, make interesting choices and then see the ramifications of those choices. And in some of those games, it's like playing out across several, several games, like your choices in Dragon Age Origins affecting what's happening in Dragon Age Inquisition, which is super amazing. Mm -hmm. And you would think that tabletop role-playing games would be like the perfect place to really dig into the consequences of something because you're not limited by what, you know, the writers had a budget to write or or whatever cutscenes are available. (laughs) Yeah. And, but I find that many of the games um, that I've played in many of the campaigns are really not thinking about character choice and, and agency and consequences. And so that's something that I've begun to really integrate into my prep is, all right, what interesting choices am I going to give my players? How do I actually make them feel like they have a choice instead of saying, all right, here's the the four to five scenes or encounters that I'm going to do this session. And first they're going to do a social and then they're going to do an investigative and then they're going to do a a combat. And then I, I know like exactly either the, the choice there or the way they're engaging with it is like a, a yes, no. Can they overcome the challenge or not? Okay. If they don't overcome the challenge, then it's a TPK and everything's over. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's not satisfying. And, and so I've really tried to focus on what what am I going to let my characters do and what sort of especially interesting moral choices when there's mm-hmm. like 
no right answer when like both things are bad and, and it's like a choice of select well, one of these just... bad options. <laughs> yeah. But, but those are like the times that really matter to them. Like in, in one of my um, women heavy games, it was, do you ally with this NPC or not? Do you choose to sacrifice your character for for some greater goal, or is your character going to potentially mess with the space-time continuum in order to fix things and, and resurrect characters? And are you okay with what's going to happen when the Guardian of Time is going to have to kill her because she is, you know, breaking the way that time is supposed to flow? So those those are, I think, what really agonize the players and like a way that actually engages their emotions at the table and more so than can you slay this dragon instead i'm asking how are you going to slay this dragon if you're going to slay them at all Mm -hmm. and why would you be doing so like creating the context around those choices that's what's going to make people remember your games down the line like oh man this guy who was who totally could have been a villain and then we ended up choosing not to think of him that way or you know, saving this character and not that character. Th- those are the moments where everyone just kind of was was in the magic of the role playing games, and I find that it it's difficult to hunt out um, adventure modules that kind of capture that, and instead they just are much more linear, which is no longer quite as interesting to me. So this brings up a couple of things, and kind of two paths in my mind going with the conversation right now is one, like you're now in the industry and in a position to maybe influence how some of these things are written and and presented. I think also being a game master and having more of that free form game where it's not as planned or binary or prescriptive takes quite a bit of confidence. And I think introduces quite a bit of anxiety and nerves about trying to run a game that way. So, (laughs) so yeah, your your choice, which one do you want to diet jump on first there? Uh, Well, we can go with the one you mentioned first. So yeah, published adventures have different constraints than your homebrew game Mm -hmm. because they have budgetary constraints, time constraints, constraints of talent also who you're getting to write on these games. And so you have to decide, all right, it's going to cost this many dollars to print it, to print a 48 page rule book. So you have to kind of decide what's going to go into those 48 pages and is it going to be you're going to give a shorter adventure but offer more choices or are you going to do a longer adventure that's more um, linear and mm-hmm. maybe gives like the illusion of choice but you're still on the railroad. So so published adventures are kind of tough and again they're they're constrained primarily by cost I would think mm-hmm. and physical page space or if you're doing like a PDF still, somebody's got to take the time out of their day to write it. And the more choice you give, the more potential waste there is if you're writing an adventure. But going hopping over to the other um, type of games, the one where um, it's the game master primarily coming up with the story, being able to, again, it comes down to like time and waste. And you could try to plot out everything that could possibly happen but you're going to spend all your time basically writing like this giant twine game or this giant like choose your own adventure type thing. Mm-hmm. And instead, if, if you want to like be able to have the luxury of those choices but not kill yourself with prep, then you need to have like the confidence to do the improvisational style of GMing and to take risks and just kind of see where things go at the table, which, yeah, if, if you're not if you don't have like a lot of confidence or you don't 
trust in yourself that you're going to be able to do that well, then you might not, rather not do it at all. And so how did you develop that confidence over time? And what were some of the roadblocks in the way of, of being that sure of yourself to run games that way? Uh, so I wouldn't say that I've achieved that confidence 100%. <laughs> it's definitely so how are, more... It's a work in progress. How are you oh, working yeah. on it? Oh, I've been... I've been trying to to push myself to to stray from the script and to not feel so beholden to my prep because what used to happen to me was I would procrastinate on prepping because I was waiting for like inspiration to strike or when I was feeling in a good mood to sit down and do prep. As a result, game day would come about and I didn't have anything prepped. And so I used to do a lot of cancellations of my games and I used to flake out a lot as a GM because I wasn't, I didn't feel prepared enough to run the game without my prep and my anxiety about creating good prep prevented me to create from creating prep in the first place. So I was kind of stuck in this terrible cycle, but eventually I just realized like, no, I, I got to run this game whether I'm ready or not, because one my players would rather play than not play mm -hmm. and I'm going to have to like fail really hard to, to not be able to at least pull something fun um, out of a session, especially if you have talented creative people playing with you, which is like 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. And I also just have to be more willing to have imperfect sessions and just not feel like, Oh man, every single time that I run a, I run a game, it has to be like, a masterpiece like Emmy award-winning game master sessions, which is super unrealistic. And that's not how, that's not how those things work. And so just realizing that it doesn't have to be perfect and Hey, as long as people like mostly had fun, like that's the whole point. And, and also being honest with people like, Hey, I didn't really prep all that much today, but let's play anyway. And, you know, help me out a little bit if you want to like push things in a direction and all those things kind of helped me get over my my fear of game mastering and, and running a bad game and not having enough prep to GM well, in my opinion. And I encourage folks to read the article you wrote about this topic for Geek and Sundry back in September of last year, Don't Let Fear or Anxiety Keep You Out of the GM's Chair. And you, you talk about, about some of those ideas of giving yourself permission to be imperfect and kind of willing, being willing to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. Yeah, it's it's so huge and it's almost harder for people sometimes when they have people saying, "Oh, you're a great GM." Like that can become a little bit of a curse because now like you're even more worried about like messing up because you're like holding yourself to the standard when really you should just like realize, "Hey, this is this is for fun. This isn't like being at work or taking a test. It's it's there for enjoyment and for stress relief usually. Mm -hmm. um, so just like kind of having fun with it and letting it go in silly directions and don't try to insulate yourself totally from hurt or from making mistakes because one, it's impossible and two, you're going to miss out on so much in the process that you'll regret it later in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about there certainly strikes a, a personal chord with me. I've, I've absolutely canceled sessions in the past because I felt like I wasn't prepared or I didn't want to let people down or I just wasn't feeling it in some way. And I imagine that happens to quite a few folks out there. 
Yeah, and we're so good at inventing, like, these horrible scenarios, I feel like, even if it's subconscious, like, there's this fear of, oh, my goodness, they're going to – I'm just going to sit there, and it's going to be crickets, and, like, everything is going to be awful. And right. I can't remember it, like, really that happening where I'm just, like, crickets, like, deer in headlights, not sure how to bring my game. Like, usually you can kind of push the players to, to move the game along for you, even if you do start, like, being like, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap, I don't know what they're going to do next, I'm not prepared for this – if you ask them what they want to do and how they want to do it, and if you like try to just throw up some made-up reasons why they couldn't do it easily, now you have a role-playing game session, and they'll you keep on doing that, rinse, repeat, and the players will basically write the story for you as long as you can come up with like some some obstacles to to throw in their path, even if it's just off the cuff based off of what they described. Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, even throwing together reskinned monsters or not, or any kind of obstacles, and just kind of running with some of the ideas the players give you—that—that's some of the most fun in a session when I introduce a problem and they come up with ideas that I would never even considered. <laughs> it just the game goes in, in interesting directions. Yeah, and it's like if you're gonna, like me, cancel your game because you don't have enough prepared, but then like some of the those coolest moments happen like totally without any prep required anyway it's like it, it's not worth it it's it's better to have the game and it's better to to just enjoy it rather than getting caught up in in whether or not you're a good gm or whether this session is good enough or because most people who deal with anxiety i feel like also have issues with perfectionism too and having these like ultra high standards that they would never put on anyone else right and i think it can be helpful to if you are a gm to to also be a player in a game and just kind of pay attention and monitor what your expectations are going into a gaming <laughs> session. Usually it's just like, hey, I'm going to hang out. I'm going to eat some pizza and meet my friends, and we're going to play something for a couple of hours, whatever. How and, many jokes can I make at this session right, is, a, is a big one, too. That the expectations are set low, but then when you change hats and you're a GM, the expectations for yourself are so high like I have to just rock these people's worlds with <laughs> this amazing session. And really I think people are just wanting to get together to hang out and play a game. And, you know, they, they don't have the same amount of importance that they're putting on that gaming session potentially. Yeah. And if you're with people that are really obsessive about having a good game and people that get actively upset, like if it wasn't to their expectations, then maybe that's not the right gaming group for you. Right. And that's why like online is such an awesome option because that really allows you to be more choosy about who you play with, even if your local options are limited because you live in a rural area or because you have like a crazy work schedule and nobody's like available to game, then you're you're not alone and it's pretty I think, you know, a lot easier to to go online and to find people who have gaming expectations that that you have and who aren't going to make you feel intimidated when you when you run a game for them a good example of this for me from several years ago was the worldwide wrestling role-playing game which i was i didn't really know the rules that well but i really wanted to try it out because i grew up with wrestling i thought this should be fun and i kind of fumbled my way through it but we all had such a good time <laughs> just making up wrestlers and like the whole a game session is basically 
a televised wrestling event and there's an announcer and different wrestlers come in and they're playing all these off the wall characters. Like it was uh-huh. a hilarious time. <laughs> and I think I've avoided playing that game again, which again, it's been years ago because I'm afraid of having that same group together and not having the same level of experience. Uh, Even though yeah. I'm guessing we would all get together and make up something new and it'd be just as funny or, but I, there, there's that anxiety there of, well, we had such a good first session. I don't want to let, I don't want to have like a imperfect second one, which is ridiculous even when I say it out loud. But I know that's part of it, part of the reason why we haven't uh, gotten back together. Also time, but. Yeah. And and wouldn't you say that you're like more bummed out that you haven't played it again than how bummed out you would be if it weren't like perfect? Like, I don't know. For me, that's that's the big thing is that anxiety can't really if you let it get in the way of the things that you want to create or the things that you want to do, then then that's what really sucks. And that's why, like, being in a creative field and having to, like, put your work out there. Like, recently for me, I was, you know, I'm watching as my, the the fictions that I worked on with writers are mm-hmm. getting posted um, for Legend of the Five Rings. And, of course, I can go and I can dig through pages and pages of forum comments of people, like, tearing these things apart and talking about, oh, it was you know, this way or that way. And I liked it for this and I hated it for that. And if, if you let that stop you from creating or, or trying, then you're really missing out, I think. And that's, that's been something that I've had to learn in a professional capacity as well. It's like, even when dealing with these like high stakes licenses Mm -hmm. or these like big IPs, just saying like, nah, I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to have fun with it. And if people like it, then great. And if they don't, then, then that's their, you know, they're right. And I'm just going to do the best I can. And that's going to have to be enough. And and so as we kind of wind down here, I, I wonder, you know, one of the things I wanted to chat with you about is working at Fantasy Flight. And certainly they have, well, they're working on some huge intellectual properties, like Legend of the Five Rings, Star Wars, think Game of Thrones. I mean, they have some really heavy hitters. And what is it like to work on those properties? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I would say, more nerve-wracking than uh, trying to run a good game for your gaming group, um, just because the the level of intensity of the fandoms is so much higher for Star Wars and for Legend of the Five Rings. Like, these people, and, and deservedly so, they care about it so much because they've spent so much time in these worlds, and they, they really know them inside and out. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you have to be careful of is, these worlds are so rich and you could spend forever like researching and researching and trying to like make sure that you get it all correct. But then at a certain point you have to say, stop, Mm. I'm going to, I'm going to create something new. And you know, if you, if you get something wrong, then hopefully you have like a good team in place to help catch things for you. And, and if not, if you make a mistake, like sometimes you can actually have really interesting things come out of that too. Um, you know, having a, a misnamed character or something else like that can actually turn into a narrative opportunity hmm. um, if you cast it in a different light. And so, what what exactly have you done with the, with Star Wars? Because I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, so <laughs> and I, you know, enjoyed Edge of the Empire. We played a little mini campaign of that a little a couple of years ago and really enjoyed it. And it's one of those things where we wanted to keep going, but just time and life gets in the way of uh, trying to get the group together. But How's that been working on that and some of the other products? Oh, it's been fantastic. For me, I first saw Star Wars 
in the theatrical re-releases in the late 90s. And okay, right on. That was uh, my my Christmas present when I was like six years old was like the VHS trilogy. And I watched the crap out of those videos for like so long when I was a little kid. And then to grow up and to be able to work on those worlds and then create like planets and new species and new adventures within those worlds has been super rewarding. And so for me working on, um, working on Jewel of Yavin was amazing because I love like heist movies and oceans 11 and things like that. And so we kind of just went all in with like a heist theme for that adventure. That was a blast. And, um, is that a I standalone got, product that people can get, or is that part yeah, of something else? Yeah, um, okay. it's it's for a little bit of um, higher level characters, but if the GM is willing to kind of dial down some of the challenges, then you could totally run it with a starting party. Mm-hmm. But I also was really lucky, and I got to work on the Smuggler's source book for Edge of the Empire, which, I mean, that thing was going to sell no matter what, right? Because everyone wants to play Han and Chewie, the role-playing game. Right. Um, and so getting to kind of populate the worlds and figuring out, like, how to make these extra gunslinger and, you know, gambler options for this. The smuggler was a lot of fun, but they should just name that book. The, you know, the directory of Hondo. He's like (laughs) my favorite character in clone wars and rebels. Like guy's great. I digress, but I love Hondo. Yeah. Yeah. The, the treat for me that I didn't realize that I was going to love this book so much was actually the Lords of Nalhutta because at first I was like, well, huts, there's like Jabba and oh, they're like gross and literally slimy. And yeah. I was, I'm a, an elf fangirl and I really like my regal, beautiful creatures. And so okay. to work on something that was like, ah, this is not what I want. But then I realized, oh my God, I get all this political intrigue, which is like my other favorite thing in the world. Okay. So I really just latched onto that in that product. And then I had like a complete and total blast working on it. Um, because of, I, I got into like the whole faction yeah, and gangsters rival. doing, yeah. doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I think too, what's really cool about those kinds of IPs is like how many different genres you can kind of fit in those worlds and, and all the different aspects of it. Because again, you can run like the, the war game, the world war two epic, or you can run like your heist games or you can run like you know, Harry Potter with lightsabers if you want to have, like, Padawans and early Force users in a in a Force and Destiny campaign. I'm being a little flippant, but... Um. No, I mean, I think something <laughs> like the Star Wars universe, which has been around since 77, and people have grown up with it, and you, I think, you know, the Edge of the Empire and some of the other products, it gives people an opportunity to do whatever they want in that universe, yeah, and if you ask two fans like what they think Star Wars is really about, or you ask two different fans what Legend of the Five Rings is all about, and they'll give you different answers based off of their personal tastes and what they really like to get out of it. And some people really like the bureaucracy or the intrigue or the, you know, the the magic users, and other people really like the battles and the, you know, these types of characters and so on. And so I'm not as familiar with Legend of the Five Rings. I know that's uh, that's something that's been out since the mid-90s, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what, for the uninitiated, what what could you talk a little bit about that product and what your role's been in doing that for Fantasy Flight? Yeah, so I am the fiction editor for Fantasy Flight, and Legend of the Five Rings is a unique 
living card game because it is so the the story is an integral part of the game and that's been the case since it was a CCG when AEG um launched it back in the mid 90s where players got to have a choice in in how the story was going to go based off of who won tournaments and then they had like fictions created with their characters so i've been really involved in um coming up with the stories for the new characters that are included in the corset and um bringing the the world which is basically a a fantastical feudal japan to life where you have different clans each clan does different interesting stuff you have a political clan an intrigue based clan a mystical clan you know military clan so you can kind of choose your your flavor of samurai that you like the most okay. and they're all competing with each other for glory and who's the most honorable and who's has the the ear of the emperor so I've been really fortunate in being able to work directly with the writers and with the development team of the the card game to help tell those stories and figure out what exactly we're going to do with the setting and who's going to take a major role and and what sort of challenges they're going to face. So that's been incredibly fun and I can't wait for the the rest of the stories to kind of unfold over the summer. What is coming up for you in the future at Fantasy Flight or or maybe even beyond? <laughs> Yeah, so I uh I'm going to be having fictions released every other week um on fantasyflightgames.com where we're okay. telling the lead up to the story up to the um Living Card Games release at Gen Con. So um that's really exciting. It's going to be like a snapshot of each of the clans and who's leading them and and what sort of struggles they're facing. Um so that's going to be unfolding for a long time and then those stories are going to continue um even after the core set is released. But otherwise, from that, I need to get back into blogging because I haven't had any time to do blogging or talk about games and and things like that. But yeah, I just there there's so many game ideas that I have kind of percolating around and mm-hmm. the like role playing games, especially because that's what I'm really into. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe ending with this, if if you feel like sharing, what are what are some of the things that you want to see in role-playing games that that aren't there yet? Like, what's missing? Do you feel <laughs> like you you want to put either create a game or put your stamp on something? Like, what what are some of the features or mechanics or whatever? What do you think is missing? So I really want to create the game that sixth grader me did not find the the t- game that would have gotten me into tabletop when I was much younger. Okay. So having a game that is specifically for women, for adolescent, teenage, preteen women who are really just kind of navigating that world of, of you know, just the, the edges of adulthood and, and what it's like to kind of navigate your identity and who you're going to be, like, working with and, and who you're going to be friends with and what sort of person you're going to grow up into because that's like so much of of what the the anime and the manga is all about is starting with these characters who are young and immature and who have to learn that they can be more than who they thought they could be and so i would really like to see um games that have that sort of those sorts of themes that are really character driven and and deal with 
um, coming of age, more or less, um, that have like the the high magic and that have that aesthetic that really drew me to to anime and manga in the first place, which is the fantastical costumes and the the amazing hair and character designs and the sweet weapons and giant robots sometimes. So I don't know. One of, one of these days that game is going to happen, I'm hoping, and hopefully I'll get to get involved with it. Yeah, you probably can't get the rights from Stevie Nicks, but I just imagine this cover that's the name of the world is like Edge of 17 with some, you know, <laughs> you could go a lot of different cool directions there. But that sounds wonderful. I mean, that that sounds like something. I mean, do you have ideas of how you might, or have you even started on that already? No, no, nothing like that. I've still got, I've got enough on my plate at work. <laughs> I bet. Well, thank you so much for taking the time again to to meet with to meet with me here for the podcast. How can people uh, check out your work online or uh, products that you've worked on, or even get in contact with, with you if they had questions? Yeah, so my blog is triplecrit.com. Um, otherwise, you can add me on Twitter. I'm at Lindevi, L-I-N-D-E-V-I. And, uh, yeah, feel free to talk to me about games. I can't always go into, you know, what's coming up next at Fantasy Flight Games because I, I can't talk about anything that's not released or announced. But mm -hmm. um, I'm always happy to chat role-playing games and, and game master advice and, you know, anything like that. And you, you'll see it on my blog, too. Those are the types of things that I talk about a lot. And are you still writing for Geek and Sundry? Is that something that's still going on? Yeah, yeah. I I haven't had a ton of time because I'm getting married this summer. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. So it's been, you know, trying to find the time for that and, you know, everything else going on in my life. But it, it's definitely something that I'm hoping to continue and I've got a couple of, of article ideas percolating around, including how to get better as a GM based on science. So hopefully that article will, oh, wow. will be okay. coming out soon. Any, <laughs> any teasers for that one? Uh, basically, it turns out that there isn't really a good system for game mastering yet, but we can probably borrow from the, the type of systems that professional athletes and um, musicians use to become better. Okay. Excellent. We'll look forward to that dropping uh, at some point. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time again, and uh, good luck. Uh, when? What month are you getting married this year? <laughs> August. August. Okay. Excellent. Right after Gen Con. Wow. What a what a jam packed month that's going to be. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I didn't think I was going to go to Gen Con this year, but I'm going. So yeah, I'll see everyone at Gen Con. That'll be awesome. And you got a room. You're one of the few people who actually found yes. a room. Yep. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it helps when you're going with a company. There's other people. Oh, that you that's right. You have an inside them. track on all that stuff. Yeah. Nice. That's a good perk. Well, yeah. well, enjoy and uh, congratulations once again. And, and thank you for yeah. your time. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope we get to chat some more at some point. Yes, please. Welcome games. back on anytime. <laughs>